listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. <laughs> well, hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Film Monsters Podcast. I'm Nate. And I am Ray. Today we're back to talk about uh, something that you guys will be super excited about. Ray and I's most anticipated film of the year, the Minions movie, Rise of Gru. <laughs> Ray, are you excited about Minions, Rise of Gru? What is going on? <laughs> okay, to, for those listening, Nate, just tell me, hey, I want to address something before we start the episode. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> the, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because... It, this leads to a larger conversation. I actually saw this movie in the theater. I did not want to see this movie, but I had a family member who really wanted to see it. And so I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll go watch this movie. And I was reading this article and Ray, I don't know how much you've seen about this, but apparently there's been this thing going on where there was this like meme on the internet of people going to see the Minions movie dressed up in like full suits and then they'd go in and they'd, like, trash the theaters and, like, harass the employees and stuff. And I guess it's, like, so out of control that movie theaters are, like, banning people from coming to see movies in suits. Like, I, it's it was all over TikTok and stuff. And I thought this would just be an interesting conversation to have with you. I, I always find it really interesting how much our society has shifted. And I remember, you know, we talked about it a little in the Edgar Wright episode, like when I was mentioning seeing Scott Pilgrim on opening night and like how excited I was. And I feel like young people, especially that the culture has shifted to where so many things now are like meme centered and like memes drive so much. This whole thing with Morbius when it was released and like it, it flopped in the theater. And then there was this like petition online to bring Morbius back to the theater. And like they got the production company to put it back in the theaters and and then it bombed again and the production company's like well why did this bomb because nobody really wanted to see it they were just fucking with you and I, I don't know there's something so interesting to me about like how many kids are going to see this minions movie not because they really want to see it but because it's a meme i struggle maybe i'm just old man in the front porch yelling at the kids but i struggle with that because i, I understand that <laughs> the Minions movie is not the, the art house film of the year by any means. But like, I've always had an affinity for the movie theaters, going to the movies for the movie experience. I remember being very, very upset when, I was super upset when there was news and the, the, the Aurora shooting that happened during the, the screening of The Dark Knight. Because to me, the theater is such a, it almost feels like a, like a shelter, a haven from all the stuff going on out there. You don't even look at your, at least hopefully, you're not looking at your phone while you're watching a movie in, in, at the theaters. So I, I understand the meme culture that we're in. I don't get it in the sense that I don't, I don't understand how people partake in it. But at the same time, I don't know. I feel like there's a time and a place. And to harass other employers, um, they're, all they're trying to do is survive in this crazy world we're in. And to terrorize a place that's so meaningful to me as a person. I don't know. It kind of bumps me out, if I'm being honest. That whole element of it, I really... 
I don't really understand it, I guess. Like, it's it's difficult for me to be like, okay, you know, like, I worked at a movie theater for a really large period of my life, and, like, knowing that kids are going in there, trashing the theater, and doing all that stuff is like, okay, well, you're taking this out of hand. But I will say, the one thing is, like, when I went to go see this movie, the theater that I was in, it was really crowded, and there was this group of girls who was, like, in the middle. They were probably, like, a group of, like, 12 or 13-year-old girls, and they were all dressed up in these, like, really crazy crazy costumes and they like brought these like wands in that looked like minion hands and they were I don't know they, they were having such a good time and like laughing and having fun and so like that element of it I'm like oh great because I feel like that's something at the theater now that's kind of been stripped away is like the element of like hey you can go to a movie and have a good time and enjoy yourself and and that power of the theater like I said when I watched Scott Pilgrim and there's so many other great memories I have of seeing films on opening night and opening weekend and I feel like that doesn't exist as much anymore with streaming and like midnight premieres because of that Aurora shooting don't really exist anymore now they're like staggering films to where they start opening at like six o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday and so I did enjoy seeing people like having that good of a time but I just think this whole idea of like meme culture and seeing films that you're not even really interested in because of just like the joke of it all it's really like a fascinating way that our culture is moving and so I brought it up mostly as like a joke Ray because I figured it would make you laugh but I also do think that it's like fascinating to think about how the youth of our generation is looking at films and like how they how they consume and perceive media i don't know i feel like there is maybe that's where the divide comes i remember um being upset at my parents because like oh you don't understand what it's like to be young but i feel like now i'm getting to the other side of that hill where i'm like okay now I see what my parents were talking about. Not necessarily in like a, like, I don't know. It's weird to explain, but I do agree with you. I feel like there is a, a sense of fun that has been stripped away from the movie theaters. When I see dumb challenges like that, it's not furthering the cost to bring that back. Now we're going to transition into talking about uh, something similar to Minions Rise of Gru, which is art house entertainment released by the Criterion Collection. <laughs> And Ray, I don't know, do uh, do you want to give everybody kind of like a background on our ideas for the episode and why we chose to do this? Um, So, Barnes & Noble, just to give a little preface, holds two sales a year uh, for this company called the Criterion Collection. It's 50% off. So what happens is Criterion, they're this company that they do film restorations they put out physical media for call it films that they deem to be important for our society and our culture so they put out all these great incredible films not all of them are so serious and self-contained some of them they have some really fun light-hearted movies they have some dark movies they have some really you know emotional movies they put out all kinds from all years too their films they put a lot of care into them which means they're usually pretty pricey. So when Barnes & Noble does their sale, a lot of nerds like Nate and myself rush to our closest Barnes & Noble to pick up some, some new films and not pay the full price tag because, like we said, they can get pretty pricey. So we figured in an effort to celebrate the sale going on right now because they hold one in July, we both share five 
of our favorite Criterion releases. I am excited to do this. Like Ray said, I, I feel like the Criterion Collection does a really good job of not only restoring the films to like the correct aspect ratio and the way that the directors want you to see it, but there's also so many great like behind the scenes things on the discs, so much of the artwork and like the fold outs. I remember I bought Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story and uh, they actually like printed the letters to, that Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson wrote to each other and put them in the packaging and there's so many cool things that Criterion does that I think is amazing and yeah I'm really excited about this Ray and I actually this is one of the first conversations we ever had on Instagram live this was like the first time we actually like talked to each other in real life and so this is kind of like surreal to me because this is really like Ray and I messaged each other on Instagram before but like Criterion was something that brought us together and so I'm really excited to do this again because it brings back a lot of good memories about how we first met and how this kind of thing all started yeah and i don't know about you nate but i'm not well, as per usual this isn't an order from from my least to most favorite these are just five that i picked i took into consideration a few things like i am not just using the movie as a point of reference but i'm also like the physical release the extra stuff that are included in the packaging i try to look at all aspects of it so the only reason why I bring that up is just because I, I'm bringing these five picks. I'm not saying these are my five favorite picks from Criterion. Criterion, you you almost can't go wrong with any of what they have out there. Mine's the exact same. I didn't pick a specific order or anything. And these, like, like Ray said, it's not like these are my favorite Criterion films. These are ones that I just thought, like, especially if you're listening and you're not really familiar with the Criterion collection, uh, these are films that I think are really worth checking out and worth your time and will give you like an idea i picked like a wide array of different types of films so that hopefully one of the movies that i recommend to you is going to be something that will pique your interest and i'm sure ray when we did this last time i think when you and me and nate did it last time we talked about like 10 movies which oh my god that was like overwhelming uh so we're gonna do five today and i'm excited to do it so like we mentioned we did we did a live stream a long time ago about criterion what i'm gonna do is i try to forego that list that i did last time and try to pick something different two of them still made my list this time around because i love these and i'm gonna open up with the ones i brought up already so i'm gonna open up with with the most obvious one and that is the restoration of the night of the living dead i can't not talk about this movie it's my all-time favorite movie and it's a part of the criterion collection i cannot talk about it no i also own a a criterion copy of this film and it's a beautiful restoration i think this is definitely a worthwhile one to talk about well, and then it's a beautiful restoration, and I love that it's also like George Romero was part of the restoration. He was part of bringing up, you know, the Romero Foundation. They provided tons of features like the, you know, the original Night of Anubis film, which is basically the Night of the Living Dead, but under the original title card. And yeah, I used to own a copy of just like your standard blu-ray from night of the living dead because what a lot of people um don't know is the night of the living dead was never what's the word that i'm looking for it's a it's free for all like anyone could grab it and release public domain public domain thank you yeah it's it's public domain anybody can like you and i could pick up the movie put on a blu-ray and sell it because it was never registered so i had an old copy that you know looked about as good as any you know, black and white, low-budget movies from the 60s would look like. But the restoration on this one looks so crisp, so clean. George Romero was there every step of the way. And to know that he had such a big hand on this one, it's just more meaningful because it might 
very well be one of his last projects, maybe besides like a book that he put out. So I don't know. I love the specs. I love it. There's hours upon hours of, you know, all of your um, special features. Uh, I don't know. I, there's not much more than I can add other than it's my favorite film. Uh, you know, if, for those that have been listening to the podcast, you know how much I love this film. It's my all-time favorite movie. And I don't know. I just have such a fondness for it. And there's no way that I was going to do another Criterion episode and not bring back my all-time favorite movie. No, and I, I'm glad you pick it because I think one of the things I love about Night of the Living Dead is, and I know we've talked about it a few times on the podcast, is I, I understand that there's, you know, it's a great zombie movie. It created all of this really interesting lore. Uh, the cinematography is gorgeous. The performances are all really great. But what I think is really cool about this movie, and I know George Romero talked about it in the past about how, like, it wasn't intentional, but I still think that he's fucking with people. The whole Dead film trilogy, the original trilogy before the other sequel, they're all such incredible social commentary and i think the importance of a film released at this period in time in october of 1968 that had an african-american man as the lead who spoilers if you haven't seen a movie from 1968 gets killed by a bunch of white people at the end of the movie is such an enormous commentary on our society at that time and i know ray you've said it before about wishing that you could have seen this in the theater but oh my god i can only imagine with the way that our society was structured at this period in time like what an emotional impact that that final scene of the movie would have and what i've always been shaken up by is like i think it's like one of the most brilliant credit sequences in a film it happens it's it's just so visceral and it really shakes you up and then just hearing that dialogue and chatter in the background as the credits roll and it's just i i absolutely love that about this movie like like you mentioned george romero claims that it wasn't um intentional and the reason why i think he says that is because i wholeheartedly believe that george romero was such a champion for you know these progressive believes back in the 60s that to him it really was not it was really a no-brainer to cast an african-american because he wasn't looking through the lens of race he was looking at the lens of a human being so i feel like his his films are social commentaries not because he purposefully wanted to be social commentaries but because he himself believed those things so it was it wasn't that out of the ordinary for him to include his system of beliefs just because he be- he believes in it, not because he was trying to teach a lesson. But at the end of the day, he ends up teaching us something through film. And another thing that I, I read somewhere, it was a film analyst, you know, a historian. He said, imagine sitting there as a white man in the 60s watching this film. You have prejudice against African-Americans. But then you start rooting for the African-American and you're rooting for him to the point where your biases get put aside and you're rooting for an African-American in the 60s to survive. And then just when you think you're getting that happy ending, the rug gets pulled from under you. That must have been one of the most powerful things that film has ever done. I think that's what's so great is horror is a genre that is so important to Ray and I both and I feel like horror gets minimalized a lot and people don't understand just what the impact of these films have on other people and Romero is one of the greatest. I know one of my favorite Romero films is a movie called Martin. I think Romero is one of those filmmakers who it's worth checking out all his stuff. I know Ray you were talking about this. I'm not sure if you saw it. Shudder put out that 
film the amusement park that little like 52 minute film that Romero did that they found the 16 millimeter print in 2017 and they did a 4k restoration of it and it's fantastic just the the man's work is incredible and anytime you get to watch anything that he makes it's totally worth it absolutely Uh, much like you and hot fuss I could go on for days about this one so I'll just let you jump onto your next one because otherwise this will become a night of the living dead podcast pretty soon I could talk about that movie with you forever I love it so much too uh so i'm gonna get mine out of the way really quick uh i ray you already knew it was gonna happen i can't talk about the criterion collection without talking about david lynch and the david lynch film i selected is the perfect film that criterion put out and restored amazingly and that is Eraserhead. ah there it is yeah i i wanted to get it out of the way first because I, everybody knows i talk about david lynch and i know that i rave about his movies but i it's hard for me to kind of put into words how much his films mean to me. And I think what I love so much about Eraserhead is I think Eraserhead is the perfect blend of that art house cinema with narrative filmmaking. And I I don't know, the restoration of this print for Criterion, it's like, it's so crisp and gorgeous. And the black and white is so immersive. You just feel like you're transported into another world when you watch this. And there's so much to respect about this. Like uh, I read... David Lynch's uh, autobiography, A Room to Dream. And he was talking about making Eraserhead. And, like, this movie took him, like, eight years to make. And he spent so much money on it. Jack Nance kept that hair the whole time that they were filming the movie. And it was a passion project. And it was something that he really felt like he needed to make. And, you know, people give him crap all the time because he's never said what it means. But I think the brilliance of the movie is that we don't know what he was trying to say with it. And that every time I watch this movie, I get something different out of it. I think that there's so much you could point out about, you know, depression and anxiety in this movie, about fatherhood, about not wanting to be a parent, about, you know, sexuality as a whole. There's so many different themes that this movie juggles, and every time I watch it, I get something different out of it, but I also just think that aside from the the different amount of symbolism and themes that you can pull from this movie, that it's just a beautiful, nightmare-inducing horror film that uses horror in such a unique way. And, Ray, I know... I, I believe you own a copy of this movie, too, and I think that the packaging of it is great. I think it looks amazing. And uh, setting it next to my uh, my vinyl copy of the score, uh, it's just, like, some of my favorite stuff that I own. Yeah, I, and I was actually going to bring that up and just piggyback off of that with The Night of the Living Dead as well. The packaging for Eraserhead as well as The other, uh, Night of the Living Dead, they're gorgeous. Like Because I feel like... I don't know. There's something about these releases Criterion puts like Eraserhead where you, you know, they come in this nice slipcover and then there's this booklet with all this extra information, all these essays and production shots. And there's something about the Criterion collection that holding a copy, especially one like Eraserhead, where it's just the image of, of the main character and then it's all black and it's just Eraserhead. You know, there's something haunting about that cover, for sure. I remember even before I had seen Eraserhead and I would go browse at Barnes & Noble's, I would see that Criterion copy and I'm like, what in the world is this? It's one of the most, I feel like, iconic shots in all of cinema is 
just Jack Nance's head suspended there and that with that black background and like the eraser dust particles falling all around him. There's something so haunting about it. And I remember before I'd ever seen the movie because believe it or not, Eraserhead was not the first David Lynch movie I saw. It was something I always like wanted to see because of just how fascinated I was with the ideas behind the movie. And I, I just remember like the sound design of the film especially. I was lucky enough to get to see this movie in the theater once. And it's just like, it's unlike anything that you can really explain to a person to watch this movie. It's such an experience, and I think Criterion did such an amazing job at bringing that experience home with you to where if you got a good TV, you got a nice sound system. Like, I know uh, the Eraser had one when you put the, the Blu-ray in it, like tells you all the different settings on your TV that David Lynch tells you to change to make it like accurate to the cinema experience. And I, I love that there's so many little attentions to detail on that. And I'm really excited because Janus Films and Criterion has made multiple comments about an Inland Empire and Lost Highway release. So we might be getting closer, Ray, to having that whole David Lynch filmography on Criterion, with the exception of The Straight Story, which I doubt will ever get a, get a release. But... Uh, yeah, I'm really excited about that. So yeah, that's my pick for uh, my number five, I guess, uh, is Eraserhead. So Ray, I'm ready to hear your number four. Uh, let, let's hear it. What you got for me? My number four is one that you probably also saw coming because I couldn't cut this one off because it's one of my favorite um, releases that they've done. Criterion does spine numbers, and a lot of people are really like obsessed with the spine numbers for for some reason. So this one was spine number 1000. It is for the, it's a box set for the Showa era films of Godzilla spanning from 1954 to 1975. Um, so this box set was a Christmas present and it's a great time to um, pick it up during the sale because obviously the box set goes for quite a lot so it's nice to take advantage of that 50%. It's got the first 15 classic Godzilla movies um, spanning from the very very first one that we saw back in 1954 all the way to Terror of Mecha Godzilla in 1975. I love these movies so much. I know a lot of people laugh at the cheesiness of like the rubber suit Godzilla but this thing is massive. This it's I actually have this one on display because it's so huge it doesn't fit with the rest of my movies. Oddly enough, I didn't quite grow up with Godzilla. Like, I would watch, like, the Matthew Broderick Godzilla. and But I didn't grow up with these, like, old school Godzilla. So then there was a, a Christmas that was gifted to me. And I just spent my whole Christmas break watching them one after the other after the other. And I watched all 15 movies in the span of a week. And I've been obsessed with Godzilla. Godzilla has become, like, a comforting thing for me where I... You know, if I'm feeling down, sad, depressed, Godzilla is almost like a go-to for me for comfort, as weird as that may sound. I, I feel like when I watch these Godzilla movies, I kind of felt back, you know, to remember my youth. Even though I didn't grow up with them, being a movie that was so oversimplified, except for the first one. The first one's pretty, pretty dense. The rest of them are just really fun popcorn movies, and there's just something about them that brings me happiness and comfort every time I watch them, so... It was a no-brainer for me to want to talk about Godzilla. It's funny to me that you bring this up because it's actually something I've thought about purchasing uh, because I have not seen like any of the Godzilla films other than the Roland Emmerich one and then a lot of the newer Godzilla movies that were released. And I always have a respect 
for the lore behind Godzilla, and I think it's such like a fascinating thing that has stuck with our culture for so long, and how much of uh, Godzilla's lore is based in like references to what was going on in the culture politically and in the war and all of the things that Japan has gone through over such a long period of time. I think it's such like a significant piece of our culture, and every time I see the the Criterion release of it, it's just so beautiful, and I think the main reason why I haven't pulled the trigger on it is because it's so expensive. It's the price tag for sure. Yeah, but I I need to sit down and watch more of these movies because I, I think that they do hold a really important place culturally for our society as a whole. And I'm glad you put this on your list, Ray, because I think that it is, it's definitely one that is worth picking up around this time since you can get it at such a steep discount. That's my, my next pick is the Godzilla box set for the Showa era. That's a great pick, Ray, and I'm definitely going to add that onto my list to watch like soon so that we can talk about it. So my number four pick, which this might be funny to a lot of people out there listening because we're talking about Criterion for the packaging and all that. This is a film that has not been released yet. Uh, This is a film that's going to be released this month, actually. So you can pre-order it at this discounted price or you can just buy it when it comes out. And that is going to be the film that was released last year and that is Ryusuku Hamaguchi's Drive My Car. This film hasn't gotten the physical Criterion release but it was announced that it was going to be released on Criterion and I think it's great that it's coming out this month so that people can get it on the discount but essentially like a brief plot of the movie uh, there's this man and his wife that you're introduced to at the beginning of the film. His wife is a screenwriter and she works on uh, television and theater productions and our main character uh, his name is uh, Yusuke Kafu he is a like a, a theater person. He spends all of his time making these immense, incredible theater productions. Him and his wife have these long conversations about these stories, and she's constantly like trying to put ideas in his head. And they they seem to be really close. Well, he goes out one night on this trip that he has to travel for for this production that he's doing, and something happens where his flight gets delayed and he can't go. So he comes back home, and when he gets home, he finds his wife in the living room having sex with this other band and he honestly just closes the door and he leaves and he goes back to a hotel room and he comes home he he literally acts like nothing ever happened he doesn't say anything about it he doesn't talk to her about it or anything he leaves and he goes to work one day and he comes home from work and she's laying on the floor dead and he the movie jumps forward after her funeral like a couple of years to where there's this play called Uncle Vanya that she was constantly talking about wanting to do. And he travels to this university that's going to let him put the play on. And when he gets there to do it, they tell him that he is not allowed to drive back and forth from his residency because that puts a risk on the school for like insurance claims and stuff. And so they'll hire a driver for him to take him back and forth between his house. And the entire film is the relationship between the lead character, his driver, who takes him back and forth, and then all of the people working on this production. And it is one of the most beautifully vulnerable stories of humanity that I've ever seen. Uh, One of the things I love so much about the movie is this production that they're having of this play. No one speaks the same language, which is something that I find so incredibly beautiful, is that they hire people based on how incredible of performers they are, and not about the language that they speak so there's this really amazing scene where when they're first learning the script together 
they're sitting down at a table and they're reciting their lines and because they all speak different languages, when their line is done, they hit the table so that the next actor or actress knows when they're done reading their lines. So you have people that speak Japanese, you have people that speak Chinese, you have people that, there, there's one woman who she doesn't speak at all. She just speaks in using sign language and it's just such a beautiful movie that like accepts all of those people for who they are and it doesn't matter their background or where they come from because they have this huge screen in the background that has all of the dialogue translated into multiple languages for the audience and so that part of the film is amazing and then this whole idea of like him living with the fact that his wife who he loved was having an affair on him and was that indicative of his relationship with her did that change how she felt about him does that change how he feels about her and there's so many beautiful nuanced and incredible things between those relationships and then the relationship between him and his driver that is just absolutely beautiful where he really sees a lot of his wife in her he sees a lot of his family in her and i don't know there's i could talk about this movie for an eternity but i don't want to get too much into spoiling the film because i think there's just a lot to really enjoy it's about a three hour runtime which i know sets a lot of people off watching a movie that's three hours long but it's such an important film and it's one that like when it ended I, I just wanted it to to keep going. It, it's such an immersive and beautiful film. And Ray, I 100% think you need to check it out. I think you would love it. I actually had seen the announcement for this movie coming to Criterion. So I was already curious, but this just completely piqued my interest. Yes, it's absolutely fantastic. I think it's something that you would really love. That's all I have to say about Drive My Car. Why don't you hit me with your number three? I, I struggled to narrow it to five. When I got to picking the fifth one on my list, the, the first four, it was a pretty easy pick but this the last one i just couldn't make up my mind so i just ended up throwing a shot in the dark whatever i pick i'm sticking with and the one that i ended up picking is terrence malick's the thin red line you know i am a big fan of terrence malick and this is one of his films i have never seen terrence malick is interesting because once upon a time when i had a little bit more of an income because i had less obligations i would go to the sales and just pick stuff sometimes even based on the cover and i remember picking up the tree of life and being completely mesmerized even though i can see how a lot of people wouldn't like that movie i was completely enamored by it so then i'm like i need more terrence malick in my life so i started kind of digging through his other films and the thin red line popped up and I don't know, I got curious. I, I knew it was scored by Hans Zimmer, so I knew that I was going to love the music. So I picked it up on a whim. It's probably up there among my some of my favorite war movies of all time. Because Terrence Malick did something really interesting on this movie that handles the subject matter of the war. You know, he took this very, like, philosophical approach to it. So for those who don't know, Terrence Malick is very philosophical Oh, how he makes his films. Often he doesn't have a di uh, doesn't have a, a script. He'll let the actors improvise lines. He will, you know. I read somewhere actually on, on the special features of the Tree of Life that Jessica Chastain's audition was her just putting a baby to sleep. So like I get Terrence Malick is very well known for doing very unconventional stuff. So I was curious how he would take that approach on a war movie. Um, and notoriously, this movie was upsetting to Adrian Brody because Adrian Brody had been casted as the lead when he went to the screening of the film. His Everything had been cut out 
and he had like maybe like five minutes of screen time and I don't think he even had a line, even though he had been casted as the lead. And the movie decided to take an approach on Jim Caviezel's character. And yeah, like Terrence Malick, just for anybody that watches his stuff or decides to give him a try, his movies are unconventional. They ha- they lean heavily on philosophical things. They lean heavily on introspective, um, being introspective. Like when I watch those movies, um, I think he is in a way almost like a David Lynch where... He doesn't want to tell people what it means. He wants people to draw up their own conclusions. And a lot of people probably might look at his films and think pretentious art house movies. But for me, they're really introspective. I watch his movies and I can't really tell you I feel X, Y, and Z, but I feel something. And it makes me become really introspective of how I'm viewing my life and how I'm viewing the things that I'm going through at the time. And The Thin Red Line, even though it has the exciting war moments... There's so many philosophical questions about yourself, self-worth, your faith, um, humanity, just the way that we view people in power. I, I, I love The Thin Red Line. It's my favorite movie of his so far that I've seen, but it's definitely one of my favorite war movies as well. And yeah, the, I can't really say much more. And I, w- I could try to explain the plot, but I feel like, like I said, Terrence Malick, Malick makes such abstract movies that sometimes it's best for people to just go blind into them and not even look at a trailer because they're, they're going to be really strange movies that you're going to want to draw up your own conclusion from them. One of the things I love about Malik too, and uh, I haven't seen The Thin Red Line. I haven't even seen a trailer for it, honestly. Uh, but like if I look at a film like The Tree of Life or uh, Hidden Life and a lot of his newer work, one of the things that enamors me with Malik's work is his cinematography. And it's so like ethereal and it really feels almost dreamlike at times where when you're watching the movie, like A Hidden Life, for instance, which I thought was an absolute masterpiece and I'm surprised more people didn't love it. Uh, but it's a film that takes place during World War II and specifically focuses on the ramifications of the Holocaust. And the beginning of the film for a movie that ends up being a lot about this family who Germans that the father wants to fight against you know, his government killing the Jewish people and doesn't want anything to do with it. And he's like supposed to go off to war and he doesn't want to be in the war. He doesn't want to fight for this cause. And the beginning of the movie is such this quiet, nuanced and beautiful film about this man's relationship with his wife and his children. And it's done not through dialogue, but through these beautiful cinematographical shots of just experiences that the family is having together. And Malik, I love that like almost mix of like handheld, really close up shots like, you know, Ray, with Tree of Life, like... There's just something about his cinematography that is so unique compared to other filmmakers that I am just obsessed with. Malik has... When you see a Malik movie, you definitely know he is the man behind the camera because there are so many tropes that he does. These very panoramic shots that almost look like paintings and the very the, the, the close-ups of people and really trying to get that emotion out of them. Uh, I was actually listening to a story that um, Malik hired. I forget what the name of the actor was for a movie called Night of Cups, which I haven't seen, but I was reading on the story that this guy was saying. He's like, yeah, Malik hired me to come do some lines. And he's like, but he didn't give me a script. He just kind of let me and Christian Bale's character just walk around 
at this party and he was just filming us. He's like, there was a moment where my wife called me and we got in an argument over the phone and Malik like grabbed the camera and just filmed me having a fight with my wife. And he's like, just stuff like that that Malik does that he just goes off script so often that films are very abstract in that way. But I don't know. I, I can't help but to be moved by his by his films every time I watch one. And the thin red line, it's just and the thin red line it just happens to be my favorite of the ones I've seen. But um the Tree of Life was was mind blowing too. So I mean the, that was the one that I was having a hard time picking between the thin red line and the Tree of Life. The thing that impressed me so much about the Tree of Life when I saw it the first time was like the opening sequences and how much of the way the film is shot is based on like perception of age through the characters and how like the beginning of the film is so much foggier and like the interactions are like even the dialogue is like more muted because it's like trying to recall memories at a specific age and he something about Malik and the way that he presents his material it's like you can tell he has this really specific vision in his head that just like kind of um makes makes these ideas so much fully more fully realized and so immersive and i love that about his films again this is another one that we can spend hours talking on so that's all I got to say right now about Malik and his work. Like I said, I was having a hard time picking which one, so I just went with the thin red line. My third pick, actually, this will make you laugh. Uh, my third pick comes from a uh, mutual friend of Ray and I. His name is uh, Mr. Nate Beasley, who I actually met through Ray when we were having this conversation. And he introduced me to a filmmaker who I had never watched any of his films before he told me about him. That filmmaker's name is Krzysztof Kieslowski, and the film I'm going to be talking about today is actually three films, and that is the Three Colors Trilogy. And similar to what Ray is saying about the Godzilla box set, this is one that's not nearly that pricey, but it's one that's worth picking up on the sale right now because it's typically, I, I don't remember the exact cost, but it's one right now you can end up getting three movies for like 30 bucks. And uh, these movies blew me away. Uh, I won't go into like super grave detail about each one because I could have an entire episode if if Ray watched these movies we could literally like talk about these movies for an eternity uh these films are called uh blue white and red which are the colors of the French flag there's a lot that has to do with the culture but there's also each film has a very interesting tone to them. Uh, each film is really tonally different, and each story is so unique. Uh, Blue is a very depressing film. Uh, it's about a woman who, in the first five minutes of the film, uh, she's in a car accident, and her husband and her child are killed on impact, and she is the only one who lives. And she gets out, and her husband was a composer trying to do this uh, last commissioned work. Uh, and obviously for him, before he died, he was going to continue to keep doing it, but he was working on this thing. And what you find out through the film is Juliette Binoche's character, her name's Julie, she's actually helped him make most of this and gotten zero recognition from it and it dives so deeply into her relationship with her husband and was he exploiting her and what is she going to do on her own and it's just this really beautiful story that is so human and then you jump into a film like white which is way more of a comedy about this guy who is living in france and 
He, uh, a certain, I don't want to get too deep into it, but he is married to Julie Delpy from the Before Trilogy, and they're having a horrible relationship, and they end up getting a divorce, and (laughs) he's from Poland, and he wants to go back home, and (laughs) he can't get back home, and so he ends up meeting this guy who helps him get back to Poland by smuggling him into the airport into a suitcase. And it's almost like this like really over-the-top, like bodily comedic thing. And then he gets back to Poland and he has this friendship with this guy who it becomes this really much more dark and depressing story. Uh, combined with these comedic tones and and it really is just this film that kind of shows life in this way of like how you know even in the darkest of situations that comedy can be prevalent and I it's typically viewed as one of the least liked of the series and I love it I think it's fantastic it's hilarious and then Red is the final film in the trilogy and Red is this really interesting film about this woman who is a model. Her boyfriend lives abroad and she is constantly shown going to these different uh, shoots and she ends up meeting this guy who she finds out that he is like listening in to what his neighbors are doing and like essentially like invading in their lives and this question of like what is privacy and why uh, why is that so important? And it, I would say, probably has... It's not a comedy, but I would say it's one of the most light of the three films. And then what's really great about it is the end of Red kind of connects all three of the movies. And there's so many amazing themes that exist throughout all three films. And this is something, obviously, we're doing an episode recommending these films. So I'm not going to dive too deep into detail with all of these. But they're such thought-provoking and beautiful films that have amazing scores, incredible soundtracks, and they're just movies that I feel feel like every time I watch them I could get something new out of them every time I see them and they're just such beautiful movies and Ray I would definitely recommend checking them out and they are definitely one that uh this series is worth picking up on the sale since it's three films and you can get it for a heck of a lot cheaper than normal okay yeah I have seen them and I do remember Nate talking about those those films as well so yeah, I am actually really excited to check them out now because you have just further cemented that for me to go check those out for sure. The Three Colors trilogy, one of my favorite trilogy of films that exists. Uh, I could not recommend it enough. So, Ray, let's hear that number two pick. So, this one was a no-brainer. This one is a movie that I absolutely love. My my brother and I quote it all the time. And this is a movie by a director that I very much hope you and I do a ranking for. And I am talking about Wes Anderson, but the movie that I went ahead and picked is The Grand Budapest Hotel. I love The Grand Budapest Hotel. I actually, uh, I have a lot of like movie posters and stuff on my walls, and my wife actually just bought me this really amazing art piece Budapest Hotel poster. I'm really excited to hang. So yeah, I love this movie a lot. I love it. It's my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Um, I know that that's not usually the popular pick for Wes Anderson, but that is my favorite Wes Anderson movie. I was so happy when they finally announced the Criterion is doing it. It makes me hopeful that we'll eventually get Isle of Dogs and the French Dispatch. But the Grand Budapest Hotel 
It was a movie that was just recommended to me in passing. I had no idea who Wes Anderson was at the time, so I watched it and I ate it up. That movie is hilarious. I go put it on right after we're done watching this episode because just um, it makes me laugh so hard. Ray Fiennes is one of the funniest people I have ever seen on camera. Uh, the dialogue is so witty and so fast-paced. So silly at times. And of course you have all of the the Wes Anderson crew show up. You know, if you've seen a Wes Anderson movie, you know exactly the tropes you're getting yourself into. The kind of dry, witty humor that he puts. But also the packaging. Because I own all of the Wes Anderson movies from the Criterion. The packaging for this one is so beautiful. This beautiful slipcase. And inside, you have the the usual booklet. But then you have this, like, other, like, insert that has a bunch of poetry that Monsieur Gustave wrote. And, like, a picture of Boy with Apple. And, you know, you have all of these things. Like, they went so into the special features and the packaging for this film. Yeah, I mean, if you watch Wes Anderson, you know exactly what kind of stuff you're getting yourself into, but it is my favorite Wes Anderson movie, hands down. I love, you know, all of the other ones, of course, but this one is just my favorite thing. I can't, when it got released on Criterion, like, this is one of the few movies that I didn't wait for the Criterion sale. I just picked it up when it went on sale because of how much I love that movie. It's funny that you said that, too, about that, because... It is not my favorite Wes Anderson film, but what I will say is I think it's Wes Anderson's best film. I think that it really, like, there's something about it that is unlike any of his other movies where I feel like the attention to detail and not only, like, the set design and just the way the camera moves, it's just his, it's perfect in the sense that I feel like it's everything Wes was working towards in his career that he made a film that is just perfect tonally and there's never a dry moment. It really works out well I feel like his comedic punches that he has worked so hard on perfecting throughout his career really resonate uh, super heavily in this movie it's not my favorite because my favorite Wes Anderson film is The Life Aquatic and there's a lot of like personal reasons why I love that movie so much even though I don't think it's his best film by any means my personal favorite of his but I do love Budapest Hotel I remember seeing it in the theater opening weekend and it was a movie that just really kind of took me by surprise I still think one of the funniest scenes in any of Wes Anderson's movie is that like bobsled scene down the hill I absolutely (laughs) love that it's executed so perfectly and I don't know I, I know there's a lot of people giving Wes shit lately because they feel like he's just doing the same thing over and over again but I don't know I I feel like he has kind of earned it he has this style that no other director uses and this very unique sense of humor and although I didn't think the French Dispatch was perfect I thought two of the three segments were amazing the middle segment with Timothy Chalamet and Francis McDormand was kind of weak compared to some of his other stuff but I loved the uh, opening segment with Leah Sado and I thought that the closeout segment was fantastic uh, and even like Owen Wilson's little bicycle monologue was really great. I love that monologue so much. It was great. I I think that, you know, when you see a Wes Anderson film, you know you're going to be enamored. You're going to be immersed into that world. And I agree with you, Ray. I really hope Criterion puts out Isle of Dogs and French Dispatch. The only current criterion i don't own of wes anderson is the fantastic mr fox yeah budapest hotel if you're not familiar with wes anderson and you've never seen any of his movies budapest hotel is an incredible first pickup from wes anderson 
So my number two pick, I'm going to talk about John Waters' Pink Flamingos. I don't even know what that is. I, 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 did, I did see it when I was browsing the other day, but I don't know what that is. Yeah, so I'm going to talk to you about it. This was a film I was introduced to because of film school. Uh, John Waters is a filmmaker who means a quite a bit to me. Uh, he is just a, a wonderful human being who represents a lot of uh, things in my life that I feel like are important. Uh, he was an out gay man from very early on in his life, uh, and he was making films in the 1980s and 70s that were disturbing audiences everywhere. And Ray, if it tells you anything, there are multiple people who have said that Pink Flamingos is the most disgusting film ever made. That's a bold statement. This movie has cannibalism, murder, uh, someone eating uh, dog poop. Uh, There's a lot of penises in this movie. You know, what I love so much about this film is... It is really extreme, and there's a lot of really horrifying imagery in it as far as, like, the ridiculousness of it. But I think that the film is really a representation of John Waters and him dealing with his homosexuality. And uh, the lead in this film is a drag queen named Divine, who was in multiple of John Waters' films, who is one of the funniest people I've ever seen in a movie as far as, like, bodily comedy goes. And this movie is cheaply made this was john one of john waters earliest films uh, where he was literally just making it with some of his friends and literally the plot of the movie is vine is this criminal who lives with her family and, and she what she kill, <laughs> claims to be the filthiest person alive and she leaves with her mom uh played by edith massey her son crackers and <laughs> his companion cotton who is the i just talking about it now is gonna make me laugh and there's these people named the marbles who also are criminals and they want to be the filthiest people alive and so the entire movie is a war between the two of them to see who can be the most disgusting person in the world and i there's a lot of this movie and i know there's been like criticisms of like some of the scenes that happened because of how vile and over the top they are. But I think, you know, John Waters grew up in Baltimore, Maryland in the 1970s. And like, I don't know, the the criticisms for gay people in that time frame. I mean, unless you were a gay person who was surrounded by other gay people, you are viewed in this very like horrible lens of like you're disgusting and you're awful and you're terrible because of your life and the choices that you've made. And I think this movie is really a commentary on like, okay, if you're going to tell me I'm a disgusting person and you're going to tell me that because of the way that I live my life that I'm gross, I'll show you gross. And it really just feels like kind of a complete and total neglect of societal standards and saying like, I'm going to embrace being a weirdo i'm gonna embrace being different than everyone else and this movie really does that in droves and and there is things in this movie that will make you uncomfortable there's things that will make you feel gross but i think that it all kind of kind of ties into john waters making a statement of like hey i think that you know i want to show the world who i really am as a person and that's kind of existed throughout his entire career uh he's always made movies that have kind of push the envelope as to what comedy can be and what like absurdism can be and 
I think is now where we live in a society that uh, homosexuality is definitely more accepted and it should be, even though we do live in a society that's still pretty backwards. But I, I think this is an important movie and I'm really glad Criterion picked it up because despite, you know, all the absurdist nature behind it, there's a scene, Ray, if it gives you a, a taste of it, there's this guy who literally, he spent the whole movie just flashing people and there's one scene where he goes and... <laughs> into this park and there's these like women eating a picnic and he like flashes them but instead of it just being his penis hanging out he has a sausage attached to a string on his penis that he spins around (laughs) there's a scene where a guy literally they call him like the butthole whistler literally it is a close-up shot of a man's butthole whistling to a song and it is like like i said it's very extreme it's really over the top, but I think there's a lot of really important messages. Uh, if it tells you anything, the budget for this film was $12,000 uh, when it came out in the 70s, and it made $7 million. So it's it's a uh, – and, and you think about what that's like with inflation in uh, the 1970s. But John Waters is somebody who's really important to me. And, uh, yeah, Ray, I would say this is definitely not one to show to your grandma or something, but <laughs> – <laughs> but uh, it's a film that means a lot to me, and I'm really glad that it's on Criterion now. I'm pretty sure that if I saw it correctly, because I haven't picked it up yet, but I'm planning on picking it up for the sale this month. When this film was released, John Waters in the theater would give people Pink Flamingo's barf bags, and I'm pretty sure that the actual Criterion uh, copy has a barf bag inside of it. It's definitely a really unique film. Uh, everybody's got that Baltimore, Maryland accent. John Waters narrates the film, and he says beautiful downtown baltimore like multiple times in the film but i yeah it's ridiculous uh i i was completely and totally disgusted when i watched it the first time but also completely enamored so yeah watch pink flamingos and then you can yell at me if it really disturbed you that's my number two pick is pink flamingos so ray i'm ready hit me with your your number one recommendation for this episode my number one recommendation is one that I actually picked up on Tuesday during the sale. Um, it's a film that ever since I saw this, I've been hope I was hoping the Criterion specifically would pick it up because it was a Netflix original. It's so it's a Netflix. You can go watch it right now if you want it. Uh, it's a film by a little known director known Bong Joon-ho. And the movie I'm talking about is Okja. I'm really glad that they picked this up because uh, it seems like Netflix is being pretty good about uh, letting Tyrion do these um, restorations of their films. And it's cool you're going to talk about Bong because I'm actually currently watching Memories of a Murder, which I'd never seen before, which I know is also on the collection. Okja is probably my favorite Bong Joon-ho movie. I know everyone like immediately jumps to Parasite, and rightfully so. It's a phenomenal movie, a great Criterion pickup too, but Bong Joon-ho, when he came into... when I, In fact, when I watched Okja, I had no clue who Bong Joon-ho was. Because I watched Okja when it got released on Netflix. That was the first Bong Joon-ho movie I saw. At the time that I watched this movie, you know, I've always... And I'm, I'm not going to get preachy, I promise. So for everyone that's about to start groaning, I'm not going to get preachy, I promise. I've always been like a big, like, animal person and i've always wanted to like do something to help you know animal rights and but i just didn't know what to do and people suggest you know i would go to warp tour and i would get approached by PETA, and i would just get annoyed by PETA, and things like that would happen and then i watch okja and for those that don't know so okja is basically a story about this multi-billion company that basically starts 
breathing, like racing these like chemically enhanced pigs. And they send these pigs to be raced in like free range farms and these farmers will take care of these pigs. And this little girl falls like just enamored with this pig and they're like best friends. And when the little girl finds out that they're going to take this pig away to be slaughtered for this meat consumption plant, it becomes this adventure of trying to break, to free the pig and to, because that's her friend and she wants to take care of this pig. And it's just like a really sweet story about, about this girl trying to save her pig. But it also, I feel like this movie did more for my desire to give up meat than any PETA documentary I could have watched. This movie kind of shine a light, whether you believe in that stuff or not, it did shine a light of how these massive corporations treat like defenseless beings profit, whether that be the animals or the poor um, farmers that are slaving their life away to raise the all this product for these multi-billion companies. Uh, so it definitely shined a light on that for me. And that, that was kind of the movie that planted the seed for me to like really start considering what I was supporting. Uh, so when I watched Okja, it did that for me. And obviously it's a great movie. It has an, an amazing cast. At the time I didn't know that it was Bong Joon-ho, but I was so enamored by this movie that when they actually announced that Bong Joon-ho had signed um, a partnership with Criterion to do Parasite and then Memories of Murder, I was crossing my fingers that Okja would be the next and I was happy that I was finally able to pick up such an influential film in my life just last Tuesday. Yeah, that's so awesome and I'm glad that that movie was able to do that for you. It's always really great when, you know, we talk a lot about it on here and I know for for certain people, movies are different for everyone. Movies affect people differently and I feel like Ray and I are both people who, you know, films have impacted our lives in such intense ways and I think that it is great when a film can, you know, change your perspective in the way that you think about certain things and I think that's really cool that you have that with this film and that it has such a great meaning for you and to be able to own it from criterion in a in a collector's way that is like something you could show to people that looks great is awesome i love that and they did uh, this is now the criterion is jumping into the 4k world it was nice that that one immediately came out on 4k so i was just able to pick it up on you know arguably the, the best format that they could offer that's well that was a great pick ray I really liked your list. You have provided me with a lot of uh, films that I might be going to my local Barnes & Noble to pick up. Yeah, same. I might pass you on that Pink Flamingo, though, but but I'll, I'll check out the rest. <laughs> That's totally understandable. So my number one, uh, I thought about this for a really long time, and Ray and I have kind of talked about this off the podcast a little bit, but uh, I think that it's important when you um, have a platform to uh, speak out on things that are important to you. As Ray said, with talking about Okja and his feelings towards, you know, animal cruelty and, you know, eating uh, vegetarian and trying to not consume those products. I think it's really important right now to talk about the, uh, the horrible thing that's happening in the United States where women are being treated as second class citizens. You look at Roe versus Wade was just overturned and despite whatever your opinion are on abortion the fact that it is not 
legal for a uh, AFAB, an assigned female, a birth person, to be able to choose what they can and cannot do with their bodies is disgusting. And so I thought that the perfect film to talk about right now that I think everyone should pick up on the sale is a film called Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, directed by Christian Moonjiu. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and the film came out in 2007, and it was it was uh, supposed to be about the 1980s. And what's really fascinating about this film is that Romania almost didn't let it be aired because the film talks about a woman who is living in a communist country who gets pregnant and she wants to have an abortion. And at that time in Romania, abortion was completely illegal. Uh, you couldn't get an abortion and you actually could be criminally prosecuted and probably killed in most circumstances for getting this procedure done. And so the entire film is this woman who her and her friend decide that they're going to go to this hotel and get her an illegal abortion and all of the things that happen during that process to get the abortion and how she has to go about and get the procedure. And you want to talk about a horror movie. This is one of the most horrifying films I've ever watched. It's so sad and it's awful because you're watching this person who has made the decision in their life that like having a child at this period in time is not something that they can do. They can't financially afford it. They can't, they don't think that they're ready to be a parent. And so because of that, they want to have this procedure done. Well, there was no way in this time period in the eighties to get out of the country to go get the procedure done. So it's like you either get it done illegally or you have the baby. And so she goes through this whole procedure to get it done and the things that happened to her and her friend to be able to get this procedure taken care of, it is like, I, it just, it, I cried so many times watching this movie. And it's been a couple years since I've watched it, but thinking about it now, it's so impactful to think about that, like in our country, where we were in a period where any woman could go to a Planned Parenthood and get an abortion if they needed to get the procedure done. And get it safely and get it, you know, in a way that their health isn't going to be compromised. And what I think is, is when conservatives use this argument like, oh, it's religion, which religion and politics shouldn't be intermingled regardless. But, you know, when we start talking about abortion as a whole and talking about this subject matter is that, and I know it's a cliched thing that people post a lot, but when you ban abortions, you're not banning abortion, you're banning safe abortions because Women in states that abortion is illegal will still find a way to get an abortion. And in a lot of times, especially for lower income people, which a lot of time falls on people of color, their lives will be put at risk because of this. And it's just a horrible thing. And I could talk about it for a really long period of time, but watching a movie that covers this subject matter in a way that is done so incredibly beautifully and poignantly through amazing cinematography and incredible performances. Uh, it's just, it's really, it's thought-provoking. And what I love about it too is like, I feel like there's so many conservatives out there who would look at you and say that getting an abortion is like such an easy thing for people to do. And it's not. Uh, like the thing is, when a woman chooses to get an abortion, it's not like, you know, they're not feeling this thing growing inside of them and like the amount of horror hormones that are involved that give you attachment to this even when it's super you know barely formed and just like the way that you have to think about it and the the angst the depression that is associated with it and there's so many things that happen in this film conveys it so beautifully in a way that's like yes this is not an easy decision for people to make but because it is your bodily autonomy you should be able to make it and i i just thought that it was really important to bring that up and to talk about a film that i feel like 
is really important and it's one that Criterion put out that I think it, you know, when they do get films like this and like Ray was talking about Okja, films that really talk about these important subject matters that people should hear about, uh, it's great when film can kind of juggle those things. So I think this is a movie, if you haven't seen it, it's worth picking up. I think it's a really important film in their catalog. Something I want to add to this to this discourse too, because I mean it's, it's easy for us as, um, you know, in my case, as a straight man, to just say things because I don't know what it's like to to live like that. I don't know what that is like. I like not to sound like a jerk, but this didn't quote unquote affect me, but it does. If that makes sense, you know, I feel like a lot of people, when they look at situations like this, they look at just what's in front of them rather than the like, rather than the bigger picture. And something I love about these films and Criterion is really good about about the the films they curate is I know that for me a lot of kind of the changes of heart that I've had throughout my life and has been through experiencing a film that talked about something that maybe I was uncomfortable with and hearing it told from a different perspective it really changes things with the way I look at the world and I that's something overall in general just with all these films that we talk about is that we watch these things and we are exposed to points of views that we would have never been exposed to otherwise. Like for me, I would have never been exposed to the topic of, of abortion as just a straight man, you know, because, you know, I'm not the one that has to carry the child. I'm not the one that has to go through all the, the issues. I'm not the one that has to jump through all the hoops for it. I would have never I would never be exposed to that had it not been for films like this or hearing the stories of the people that are actually affected by it, you know, like. Like I was telling you, when I watched Okja, I had seen all the documentaries from PETA and I was like, this means nothing. And the moment I saw it from a more intimate, heartfelt perspective, it totally changed my perspective on it. And I feel like that's the beauty about films, that you can be exposed to a point of view that maybe you were uncomfortable with or you weren't sure about. And I'm not saying you walk away feeling like a changed person, but it definitely opens your mind and makes you really rethink your point of view like a lot of these films have for me throughout the years. Oh, 100%. I think you just nailed it on the head with that too. And I think what's really important about films like the one I just talked about is, you know, some people are like, oh, when you watch a movie, you're just watching it for solely entertainment purposes. But like Ray said, you know, you can be given information about any sort of topic and you can kind of just brush it off and and not think a certain way about it. But there's something about when it's conveyed through art that makes you think so much deeper and that these filmmakers put subject matter out like this that really cause you as an audience member to have to think and can get these films out to someone who may not have ever thought about these subject matters before. I watched this really great film from 2020 that was called Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. And it was a film about a young girl in a state in the U.S. where she was not able to get an abortion at that time. And she got pregnant, and so her friend drove her to New York City to get an abortion. And the film really looks at it through the perspective of that I hope a lot of conservative-minded people watched it where she goes into this place that like touts itself as like a um, like a place you can go get medical help and it's ran by conservatives. And she goes in and it's literally like they're not even giving you an option. It's just like a, your only option is to have the baby and they're giving like pamphlets of like you need to do this, you need to have this child, like this is your option because 
because think about what you're doing and like really kind of bullying the person to try to have the baby. Well, then it shows her going to a Planned Parenthood. And what I think is so interesting is like something about conservatives. And I said this recently, I talked about the film Obvious Child from A24, which is another movie about abortion on my YouTube channel, is that conservatives, I feel like, think that women can just walk into a Planned Parenthood and say, give me an abortion, and they'll lie you down on a table and give you the procedure in 10 minutes. Well, like this never rarely, sometimes always movie, she goes in and you get literally mental health consultation of like, are you sure that this is a decision that you want to make? Is this something that you want to have done? And they have to plan out the procedure. They have to set aside a date for it. You get counseling. They constantly are trying to make sure that you are of sound mind because it is not a simple decision to make. It is a very difficult decision for a person to make. And I think that that putting that in art and showing it to a person through this lens is so important because there's so many people in this world who sure me as a person who is very liberal could come to you and tell you a million different reasons why women should be able to have an abortion and if you're a conservative minded person you'll just blow me off but if you see it done through a way where you're connected to characters that you give a shit about and that you're attached to these characters and you see what they're going through it has an entirely different impact on you as a person this is like going back to what we mentioned earlier about Night of the Living Dead to put an African American lead in the, in the sixties and make a room full of white men root for an African American and then have the rug pulled from under you. It's it's the beauty of films. I mean, this is the beauty of of art in general. But we, since this is a film, you know, oriented podcast, that's the beauty of films that we can be placed. Like, like I'm sure for people, and like we think about that that example of Night of the Living Dead, and we're like, yeah, what's the big deal? But I'm sure for the 1960s, that was revolutionary, and I would argue that you know Night of the Living Dead changed things for the better. Just like hopefully some of these other films will change things for the better, and some of these you know topics as they keep appearing you know, throughout our lives. 100%. And I will say before we end up this topic, uh, I know I'll plug all of our socials and stuff later, but like, uh, I know I am a white man and I am not going through this, but I just want to say to any person out there who's listening that is uh, a female or uh, assigned female at birth person that just on behalf of uh, the men in the world, I'm sorry that our government thinks of you as a second class citizen. There are so many women in my life and uh, AFAB people that I love so very dearly who I hurt so badly for them right now that the government is like, hey, you don't matter. You shouldn't be able to make decisions for yourself. And it's kind of like we're reverting back to an era and it really makes me scared not only for uh, queer rights, but I've seen things brought up about interracial relationships and like things that are going to happen for minority groups. And it's a really terrifying time to live in this country. And I'll plug all Ray and I socials later, but like if you're a person in one of these groups and you want to reach out to me and just have a conversation or feel like you can have somebody to talk to about this stuff, I am more than willing to just sit and listen to you and you can talk about whatever you need to because I know these are really hard times and my heart just breaks for people out there and uh, watching these movies, it kind of brings it even more into light and we watch movies a lot of times as an escape, but we also watch movies to be educated and watching these types of films gets me more fired up to you know be a voice and to try to help people and I want to use my platform in a way that I can to speak out for people who are being mistreated. So if you do need that, my inbox is always open and I'm willing to just listen to someone rant or tell me their feelings about how this is impacting them. 
I mean, you said it all, but I'll I'll throw my hat into that, into that as well. I, you know, I, I've spoken about this. My family and I, we migrated from El Salvador some 20 years ago. Um, we were, you know, we dealt with. I, I've dealt not to the extent that some others do, thankfully, but I have dealt with my fair share of, you know, prejudice over, you know, even the fact that English is not even my second language and that I, my accent shows sometimes. So I I get it. I'm with you. And if if I if what I've dealt with is just like a fraction of what some other people out there deal with, then please reach out. You're not alone. One hundred percent. And that's what our podcast is hopefully a hub for every weird, strange, unique individual person, because Ray and I are both very accepting people. We're very, uh, we're very, we're a group of weirdos who like weird content and we want to be there for people who need it. So yeah, um, 100%, our, uh, inboxes are both always open. So Ray, after that really heavy subject matter there towards the end, I really enjoyed your picks and I really appreciate your picks. I'm excited to head over to my local Barnes and Noble and uh, have my wife eventually drag me out of the store by my collar saying, make up your goddamn mind. <laughs> well, and I mean that I, I feel like, <laughs> yeah, I um, or or just flush your savings. Why not? Mortgage. I'll 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 re I'll refinance my house so that I can buy every every one we talked about today. <laughs> there you go, and, and you know what? I figured this topic this I figured this episode was going to get a little heavy because Criterion is notorious for not doing your easily accessible Michael Bay types. You know they usually so I figure that's why that's why. And as we discuss here in a second what our next topic is, I figure we go for lighthearted for next topic. Also, speaking of Michael Bay, he is in the Criterion Collection. That's right. He has Armageddon. Armageddon. Yeah. So technically, Michael Bay's thought-provoking masterpiece, Armageddon, is in the Criterion Collection. Yeah. So, Ray, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, what our topic's going to be next week? So before we jump into that, I wanted to lead the topic by asking you a question. Go for it. What song saves you from Vecna? Oh, God. Uh, it's definitely not running up that hill. Um, honestly, if I have to be real with myself, it's Punisher from Phoebe Bridgers. Not just because I love that song a lot and it means the world to me about like my connection with musicians and how much like someone's art means to me and like that thought of like when you finally get a chance to have a conversation with an artist that you love, would you fall apart? Would you say the right things? Uh, but I also think it would make for a really beautiful cinematic experience. How about yours, Ray? I wish mine was as classy. Mine is plain and simple. It's Cosmonaut by At The Drive-In. Oh, there you go. Hey, that's not a bad pick. I love At The Drive-In. At The Drive-In is one of those bands that, like, they just... Relationship of Command is one of my all-time favorite albums, and that song is my favorite At The Drive-In song. And every time I put it, it just kind of makes me feel not sad and depressed it makes me feel a little bit better about things and you know the the message that that scene conveys is her you know max the character of max going back to a place in her life where she can escape from that darkness and i feel like cosmonaut by at the drive-in does that for me and with my pick 100 percent, it's like puts me in a place where i feel good right so the reason i i asked that random question out of nowhere is because that was going to be the segue into our next episode, which I thought we'd keep it a little bit more lighthearted. Um, a lot of people know us from our weird movie 
inclinations, but you know, we've said this in passing. A lot of people don't know that you and I are very musically inclined. We're huge music fans. Thought that for the next episode, what we could talk about is talk about our picks for our favorite musical movies. And by musical, I don't mean musicals. I mean movies that are, you know, that are surrounded by music. Um, a great example is like Scott Pilgrim, which I'm going to leave out of my list because we just had an episode on Edgar Wright. Scott Pilgrim is a prime example of a movie that's very influenced by music. So I figure we can talk about some of our favorite music-related movies. Um, I personally am going to go, I'm going to forego musicals or biopics just because I want to stick to movies that are more focused on like the musical aspect of it. And I feel like musicals and biopics could be their own category all of their own so that's why i figured we can discuss some of our favorite you know music related movies to kind of have a more light-hearted topic after this heavy one we just had i really like that topic too because i feel like there's so many great movies that exist that use music as a through line where it's less about like it's less about like what you said it's not like oh this is a musical or oh this is a biopic about someone but just like the soundtrack and the music and the way that it plays into the film is pivotal to that and where there's like conversations about musicians or music in the film and so I'm excited I've actually since Ray and I talked about this off podcast I've been like doing some doing my research and thinking a lot about what I want to choose and I think so far I've gotten some pretty interesting picks so I can't wait to hear what you pick Ray I feel like this is one where I'm sure you feel the same about me that I literally have no idea what you're going to pick which makes me way more excited about it same and also like I don't know I feel like like you discussed earlier with all the stuff going on in this country and all this stuff happening and you and I have been very open to each other about the fact that we both um, suffer with with depression and anxiety so sometimes yes it's good to watch these heavy subject matter movies and sometimes it's good to just watch fun movies to really make you escape from it all and I feel like this will after this heavy topic it would be good for us to go enjoy some more lighthearted films. 100% I love that and I cannot wait to do that. It's crazy to think too that uh, Ray and I are getting close to 10 episodes and at the end of next week's episode we'll have some uh, exciting news to share with you about the podcast and the future of the podcast. We're not going to give anything away yet but that's just to kind of plant a little bug in your ear about what's to come. So uh, before the episode's over, I just want to go ahead and do a quick plug for Ray and I. Uh, if you want to follow us on Instagram, you can follow our main page, which is at the Film Monsters Podcast on Instagram. Uh, Ray typically operates that, does a really good job with it. I log on to it every now and again. Uh, but I, we really love seeing the interaction over there. And then obviously Ray and I have our personal pages. You can follow Ray at Analog C and myself at My Exit Unfair. All of our informations are in the descriptions of the episodes. And yeah, uh, we're looking forward to getting some more content out there for you. I had a blast with this episode and I look forward to the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. All right, everybody. Have a, have a wonderful day.